appreciate the opportunity to help out and fill in here this morning. That's probably nothing harder than speaking in your home church because people know you. (laughs) And uh, Mike Booker, if you ever hear this, we are going to cover every verse. (laughs) At certain critical points in American history, battle cries have arisen because of military defeats, uh, tragedies, and disasters. And each of these battle cries have called upon Americans to remember some defeat, tragedy, or disaster, and to respond with courage and determination to right the wrong suffered. So let's see how good your historical memory is this morning. I want you to supply the missing word or words in these cries that begin with remember, okay? So on April 21st, 1836, before the Battle of San Jacinto, General Sam Houston rallied his troops who were about to defeat Santa Ana's Mexican army and end the land battle for Texas, Texas independence with the phrase, remember the Alamo, right. Got it. The Alamo, of course, was the fort, a former mission whose Texian and Tejano soldiers had been overrun and killed by Santa Ana's army about six weeks before that. On February 15, 1898, a United States battleship with a connection to our area exploded off the coast of Havana, Cuba. It killed 260 soldiers and Marines. The ship was there to protect American interests during the Cuban revolt against Spain. And although historians are still unsure who was responsible for this tragedy, American newspapers blamed Spain, and they fanned popular sentiment into flame with the cry, Remember the Maine, right? On April 25th, America declared war on Spain, and Remember the Maine became the pro-war battle cry of the Spanish-American War. On December 7th, 1941, almost 200 Japanese warplanes attacked the U.S. naval base in Hawaii with a devastating surprise attack, killing 2,403 Americans and wounding another 1,178. The attack destroyed 188 U.S. aircraft and sunk or damaged 19 Navy ships. This brought America into World War II, and with this battle cry uniting the country, remember Pearl Harbor. Some of you got it. Remember Pearl Harbor. On the morning of September 11, 2001, 19 Al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked four commercial passenger planes in the United States. Two planes were flown into the twin towers of the World Trade Center in New York City. It caused both of those towers to collapse. A third plane was crashed into the Pentagon just outside Washington, D.C. The fourth plane crashed in rural Pennsylvania after the crew and passengers attacked the terrorists on board, preventing it from hitting another target thought to be the White House. The attacks claimed nearly 3,000 lives and impacted many more globally. On September 20th, U.S. President George W. Bush declared a war on terror 
and stated that defeating terrorism was now the world's fight. The U.S. had experienced terrorist attacks previously, but none had been on the same scale or significance. 9-11 shook the world and shaped the generation to come. And so 21 years later, those of us who were old enough on that day can tell you exactly where we were and what we were doing when we found out about it. We remember 9-11 and we'll never forget it. All these events that led to these cries to remember something were sparked by defeats, tragedies, or, and disasters. They were used by Americans to unify and strengthen the country for the challenge it was facing. In the New Testament, we also find calls to remember that serve to unify and strengthen believers for the challenges that we face today. But these calls to remember are not based on defeats. They are based on victories won by the Lord Jesus. For example, when the Apostle Paul was about to be executed by Nero and Christians were facing persecution and death for their faith, he called upon his disciple and representative Timothy to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, 2 Timothy 2.8. Paul knew Timothy and his fellow Christians were going to be called upon to endure severe trials. But Paul also knew that remembering their Lord had defeated sin, death, and Satan on the cross and had arisen from the dead in glorious victory would supply the faith and courage they needed for the dark days ahead. In the same way, when we today remember that our Lord Jesus has risen from the dead, and ascended into heaven, and is interceding for us at God's right hand, our faith is increased, and our courage is strengthened. We know that Jesus' victory over sin, death, and the devil frees those who believe from any condemnation and assures us nothing can separate us from Christ's love for us. So Paul wrote, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And of course, the answer is no one and nothing. And so our Christian battle cry from the past is, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The Apostle Peter, in our scripture passage this morning from 2 Peter chapter 3, places before us a call to remember something not from the past, but from the future. Peter, like Paul, was soon to be executed for his faith in Christ. But he wants the believers to whom he is writing to be able, after his death, to remember a crucial point of the Christian faith. This truth will sustain them in the face of opposition and ridicule. It's a truth contained in the writings of both the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. We read about it in 2 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets 
and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So while Peter doesn't specify which Old and New Testament teaching he wants us to remember in these two verses, it becomes apparent when we look at verses 3 through 10 exactly what that teaching is. It is the prediction that Jesus will come again and that his return will initiate the divine judgment of the day of the Lord. And so in verse 4, mockers ask, where is the promise of his, that is Jesus, coming? Verse 8 describes the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Verse 10 reassures us that the day of the Lord will come when Jesus returns. In the Bible, the ultimate day of the Lord is an extended period in which God deals openly with the world in judgment and in blessing. And it includes at least seven key events. In each of these key events, the Lord Jesus is the major player. And while we can't go into them in detail this morning, the day of the Lord includes these activities of the Lord Jesus. Number one, Christ comes back for his own, 1 Thessalonians 4. Two, Christ is challenged by Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians 2. Three, Christ troubles the nations and Israel, Matthew chapter 24. Four, Christ comes to rescue and judge Israel and judge living nations, Revelation 19. Five, Christ rules the world from an earthly throne, Revelation 20. Six, Christ defeats his enemies and judges the dead, Revelation 20 also. And finally, number seven, Christ creates a new heaven and earth, Revelation 21. So while all of these events will be involved in the day of the Lord, Peter's focus in 2 Peter 3, 1 to 10, zeroes in on the certainty of the Lord's return and the certainty of the judgment his return will bring about. Peter knows that remembering the truth of Jesus' return will protect his leaders against the error being spread by the false teachers. He had denounced those false teachers in chapter 2. He also knows that remembering Jesus' return will prepare them to live well while they are waiting for the Lord to come. In the same way, and this is our major point this morning, remembering Jesus' return protects us against unbelief and encourages us to wait patiently for him. Peter points out the error of the false teachers in verses 3 and 4. They deny that Jesus Christ is coming again, and they mock at believers for putting their hope in his return to judge and rule the world. And so we read in verses 3 and 4, Know this first of all, in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. These false teachers are motivated by the desire to do what they please. Peter says they follow after their own lusts or evil desires. And the thought of a return of Christ with a judgment to follow would interfere with this desire to do what they want. So they deny the whole concept and mock at those who cherish it. A modern example of this motivation is found in a book written by a Nigerian journalist in 2017. 
Patrick Huguet's book is entitled Indisputable Evidence That Jesus Is Not Coming Back and Other Things You May Not Know About God and Christ. I would not waste $7 on such a book. But one of his chapter titles gives away the same motivation the false teachers of Peter's day had. The chapter contains, quote, biblical proofs that we are God, end quote. If we are God and Jesus is not coming back to judge the world, then we are free to live as we please. But folks, the truth is, we are not God. Jesus is coming back, and we are not free to live as we please. The second half of verse 4 shows the false teachers base their denial of Jesus' return on the uniformity of history as they observed it. They ask, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Commenting on this verse, Pastor John Piper notes this. This is an amazingly modern argument for rejecting the supernatural bodily second coming. It simply says the laws of nature are constant and unchanging. The sun has come up and gone down. The seasons have followed each other. The tides have risen and fallen for thousands of years in perfect order. Therefore, we must expect this constancy for the future. And any thought that the sky might be rolled up like a scroll and the earth purged with global fiery judgment by the returning Christ is unimaginable and unwarranted. This perspective of the false teachers is a naturalistic view of the universe as a closed system in which all events have natural causes and any supernatural event is ruled out. One modern skeptic put it this way, the second coming of Jesus Christ is the greatest non-event of history. In verses 5 through 7, Peter will show his readers and us the error involved in this kind of thinking and why the return of Christ and an ensuing judgment of the world is a justifiable belief. 2 Peter 3, 5-7. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So to refute the teaching and the thinking of the false teachers and to protect his readers and us from the unbelief that error would lead to, Peter explains three things that the false teachers are ignoring. One, God brought the world into existence and shaped it by speaking a word. Two, God destroyed the world of Noah's day with a flood of water by his word. And three, by God's same word, the present world is destined to be destroyed with fire in the day of judgment after Jesus comes. If God was able to speak the world into existence and then destroy it by issuing another command, he will certainly keep his promise to return and judge the world with fire in the future. But how could Peter 
be so certain of these biblical events and of Jesus' promise to return and judge the world. And for that matter, how can we be assured of them? Peter believed the Bible accounts of things like the creation, the flood, and the Messiah's coming to judge and rule the world because Jesus had always treated the scriptures as God's inerrant word. And Jesus had personally taught Peter that God directly created Adam and Eve and that just as the flood destroyed the world's population in Noah's day, so Jesus would judge the world at his return. And in addition to that, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John personally witnessed the divine majesty that would shine through Jesus at his coming again in power and glory. They had a glimpse with their own eyes what Jesus would look like at his second coming. And so they were even more sure that the biblical prophecies about the Messiah's return were trustworthy. This is what Peter wrote earlier in this letter, chapter 1, verses 16 to 19. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And like Peter, those of us today who trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior have a sure foundation for believing his promise to return and judge and rule the world. Don't let anyone persuade you that because Jesus hasn't returned yet, he will never return. He promised, I will come again. The day of the Lord will come, Peter writes in verse 10. If his return, then, is so certain, why does it seem to be taking so long? After all, it's been about 2,000 years now since Jesus made that promise to us. And what Peter writes in verses 8 and 9 helps us understand the Lord's perspective on the time of his return and why he hasn't returned yet. What he says equips us to wait patiently for him. Verses 8 and 9. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So if we think it's taking an exceptionally long time for Jesus to return, we need to remember some things. We need to remember that the Lord is the eternal God. And he does not experience time as we do. His perspective on time is completely different than ours. A couple of thousand years to him are no more than a couple of days to us. He's not affected by time as we are. And second, 
Peter tells us we also need to remember why the Lord Jesus hasn't returned yet. He isn't dragging his feet. He wishes more people experience his salvation before he returns and judges the world. He does not desire anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We could well ask then, what does it mean to repent? Repentance literally means a change of mind. When I repent, I admit my own personal sinfulness and unworthiness of acceptance by a holy God. When I repent, I change my mind about Jesus himself and his death on the cross. When I repent, I recognize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and when he died on the cross, he was taking my place, suffering separation from God for my sin. When I change about my mind about myself and Jesus in this way, I also put my trust in him as my Savior and submit my life to him as my Lord. This repentance, this change of mind, inevitably brings about a change of direction in my life. Instead of being concerned primarily with my will and desires, I begin to live in a manner pleasing to him. Why is the Lord so patiently waiting for us to repent? Because he loves us and doesn't want any of us to perish. To perish is to be eternally separated from God and his love and all that is good. One of the most famous verses in the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16, makes clear that it is God's loving desire that we not perish that moved him to sacrifice his son for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So if you're hearing this message and have never repented of your sin and embraced the Lord Jesus as your Savior, this is the day to do it. God says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today, the Lord is patiently waiting for you to come to him, but he will not wait forever. Take advantage of the opportunity his love extends to you today. There is a day of judgment coming, and it will come unexpectedly. In verse 7, Peter called that day the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. In verse 10, he points out it will be a judgment on the physical world itself, as well as the things people have done in it. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. A few verses later on in this chapter, Peter will point out that this destruction of the present world paves the way for a kind of world which we hope and long for, a world in which righteousness prevails. So then, the central idea of these 10 verses is that remembering Jesus' return protects us from unbelief and encourages us to wait patiently for him. Remembering Jesus' return motivates us to live a godly life. And how the truth of Jesus' return and the day of the Lord's judgment his return initiates relates to our daily life is made clear in verses 11 to 18. 
Now, in the next two Sundays, Lord willing, Pastor Tim will flesh out this very personal application for us. And I don't want to tread on his passages this morning, but I encourage you to read those last verses in 2 Peter carefully between now and then to prepare your hearts for the Lord's messages to you through him. I do want to direct our thinking in these last few minutes to what it means to wait patiently for the Lord's return. The Lord has not yet returned because of his patient love for us. But do we reflect loving patience as we wait for him? Let me illustrate two contrasting kinds of waiting from my own experience and suggest why one is the kind of patient waiting that should characterize our lives as we wait for the Lord's return. Margot and I have now been married for 49 years and 107 days. <laughs> she is still the love of my life. We became very close friends after I became a Christ follower in my junior year in high school. However, after our relationship became romantic, it started having its ups and downs. I was more certain Margot was the woman I wanted to marry than she was sure I was the man she wanted to marry. And some of her, our ups and downs were tied to her spending summers at Frontier Ranch in Arnprior, Ontario. It was a, a Christian horse ranch for girls. But unfortunately for me, the wranglers the ranch employed were high school and college age boys. <laughs> and spending a summer with them dampened her enthusiasm for me. I soon came to understand why Willie Nelson sang, Mamas, don't let your sons grow up to be cowboys. They'll steal your girl's heart away. Nevertheless, one summer... I found the courage to buy an engagement ring to present to Margot at the end of the summer, only to find once again that distance had not made the heart grow fonder. So I had an engagement ring, but no one to give it to. And not sure what to do, I just kept the ring in my dresser at home for about a year. I waited for things to change for the better, but I did not wait very patiently. And I didn't have any real assurance the relationship would work out the way I so much desired it would. That kind of waiting is not the way the Lord wants us to wait for his return. It was based on merely wishful thinking and not real faith. The kind of patient waiting for his return he does desire was demonstrated for me by a three-year-old boy. We babysat little Matthew for a couple we were good friends with. And Matthew had been left in our care for the day, and he busied himself quite happily with his play. However, as the afternoon went on, Matthew, without saying anything, kept returning more frequently to the big picture window in our second floor apartment that looked down on the parking lot. His father had an old red Ford van. And Matthew was looking for that red van to appear in our parking lot. Matthew knew his dad loved him and he loved his dad. He also knew his father had promised to return and pick him up. And his dad's promises were reliable. Although Matthew did not know exactly when his dad would return, 
He was confident he would keep his promise, and so he waited patiently. But with eager expectation and frequent trips to the picture window, he didn't stop playing nor complain about his dad's delay, but his return was increasingly on his mind and filled him with hope. I believe this is how our Lord wants us to wait for him. He wants us to love his appearing because we love him and know how much he loves us. He doesn't want us to sit idly around, but to busy ourselves with our current responsibilities as we wait. One of those responsibilities implied by our passage today is sharing the good news about Jesus with others that they too might repent and trust him as their Savior and Lord. He doesn't want us to complain about his delay, but to patiently wait with increasingly eager expectation. He wants us to wait with confidence in his promise that dispels unbelief and motivates us to live godly lives. And he promises in his return to reward all those who have loved his appearing with a crown of righteousness. At the very end of the Bible, the Lord Jesus promised, I am coming quickly. And we respond, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.